Well, good morning and happy Earth Day. Did you know that? I want to remind you before I get into the sermon that in honor of Earth Day, we're actually having an Earth Day event. We're going to be uh, out around the community picking up some, some litter, some trash, and I'd love to have you join us. And if you want, you can pick up one of these sweet t-shirts. Check it out. Everybody say, ooh. Uh, you're not convincing that I should go into modeling right now. These shirts are available, $10. You can pick them up out uh, in, in the hallway, but we'd love to have you join us. Uh, we believe that when God created the world and he called it good, he meant it. Right? There's some responsibility in our part to help take care of take care of creation, which is really what today is all about. Now I love it. I absolutely love it when you are able to get your family circus caught on film, on camera. Right? Whether it's a picture, whether it's a video. And summer before last, we were able to do this on our annual trip to the beach. Here's how it went down. You ready for this? Give you a play-by-play. Before we left for the beach, my wife and I, we got a hold of some kites. Our kids had never flown kites. We're like, what better place to fly a kite than the beach? They're going to love this. And sure enough, when we show, showed the kids the kites, man, we, we hit jackpot. They were so excited. In fact, the whole way to the beach, all they wanted to talk about were the kites. They weren't excited about the pool that had this giant slide and inner tubes. I was really excited about that. Like getting all greased up. Let's see how, how fast daddy can go, right? They weren't excited about putt-putt. All they wanted to do was fly the kites. The first day we're there. They convinced us we were going to do it that evening. We were going to fly kites that night on the beach. And my mother-in-law caught all of this on film. As you can imagine, it didn't go the way we thought it would. But here's the first picture. It's like old school slideshow. Ready? First picture. Here's dad. Already I got a bad feeling about this. I mean, it's like super windy day. Okay? But there you can see we got a Transformers kite and we got Dora the Explorer. Okay? Next slide. Things start off great. Kites are flying, kids are ooing and on. when all of a sudden, next slide, Dora the Explorer makes a break for it. She's gone. String breaks, kite flying, right? Here's the next picture of my wife and my daughters watching Dora fly off into the wild blue yonder, right? When suddenly, I love my Gigi baby, you cannot break her spirit, she thinks, I'm going to catch it, takes off running, didn't last very long. She got tired. Next picture. Here's wife consoling Gigi baby. Selma's doing her best too, looking up a big sis. Next slide. Meanwhile, big brother Rowan is doing what big brothers do best, laughing hysterically at them. He loves the fact that he's the only one with a kite left, rubbing it in. I mean, just getting nasty, right? You know where this is going. Next slide. Transformer kite breaks free, flies away. Mom thinks this is hilarious. I mean, she's laughing so hard, right? Here's how Rowan felt about this. He's mad, isn't he? That's like foot stomping mad. You know they're mad when that foot starts coming up, right? This is how the evening ended. There you go. Big ambitions. Didn't quite live up to it. But look at Selma. Selma looks like thoroughly entertained. Don't you agree? Hashtag my family circus, right? So much fun. If you're just now joining us, we are in a, in a series that is about all things family. And in calling your family a circus doesn't mean we think it's a bad thing. The circus has just kind of always been its own thing, right? A little bizarre, a little strange, good bit of chaos. But at the same time, the circus can be a whole 
a lot of fun. Now, last week, we kicked things off by actually spending all of our time talking about our family of origin, talking about where we have come from and how that has shaped us and really challenged all of y'all to take some time, spend some time really examining and trying to understand the different family systems maybe that you grew up in and how that has shaped you, both for the good and for the bad. And we finished last week by, by confronting ourselves by what the truth of the gospel has to say about some of the dysfunction, y'all got some dysfunction, right? That we maybe haven't inherited from the folks who have come before us. And if you didn't get a chance to listen to that sermon, I really want to encourage you. You can jump online, you can go to the church website, you can listen to it there. But I also want to encourage you that you know, to, to come out. We have one more week left of Family Circus Continued. It's a Wednesday night class. We had around 100 people come out last week to, to really begin to even unpack more so these family systems, the, the various types of backgrounds that we've come out of and how it's shaped us. We had a really great time on Wednesday. Hope that you'll, you'll, uh, you'll come check it out this week. But really where I want to go this morning is I want to build off of that. And I, I want us to turn the corner and really begin to wrestle what does it look like for us to shape either our current family or maybe our future family one day? What's it look like for us to shape our family around the gospel? Which to me, it seems like how this should work, right? Sort of common sense. I mean, if, if you believe that something's true, if you profess that something is true, then that means that it should maybe show up in how you live, right? Right? And should show up and how you go about doing life together, how it should influence and shape your relationships. So we're going to be in the New Testament book of Ephesians. It's to the right, okay? And Ephesians is, Ephesians is really built on this premise, this simple premise that whatever we profess to be true, whatever we have placed our faith in, it should show up in how we live our lives, which begs the question, if it's not showing up in our lives, then maybe we don't really believe it's true. But that's a whole other sermon, maybe for another day. But, but the first half of the book of Ephesians, it's written by this guy named Paul, and he's writing to this church that he spent a whole lot of time with. I mean, he is super close to this community, and it's believed that he hasn't been there for a while, and so he's probably writing to, to the second-generation Christians, the folks that were, were little kids when he was there, there the last time, but now they've, they've grown up, and he's sort of telling them everything that he feels like they need to know in order to move forward with this Jesus thing. So the first half of the book, I mean, he's just unloading on them. He's, he's talking all about sort of their vertical life, their life with God. He's unpacking the truth of who Jesus is, right? What Jesus has accomplished for us, what Jesus has made available to us. It's some amazing stuff. But then he begins to turn the corner halfway through it, and he begins to leverage all of that. And he starts pointing it at you and I in terms of how we live our lives. Basically, it's like, if this is true at all, right? If we have placed any faith in our life with God, if, if we've professed belief in any of this, and guess what? It should begin to spill over into our life this way. It should begin to influence the way that we live our lives. And so he has so much to say about our relationships. And he actually has a lot to say about the family. But, but what I want us to do this morning is zero in on this really short passage. It comes in at the, at the end of chapter four, at the beginning of chapter five. And I like this passage so much because it's almost like this really concise summary. It's not the first thing Paul says about relationships in Ephesians, and it certainly isn't the last thing he says about it. But it's almost like in the middle of all this really great teaching, he sort of stops and says, time out, hold on. Let's just, let's just be clear what I'm talking about here. If your faith in Jesus is meant to influence anything, it's meant to influence the way that you do life with the people you love. 
And these are the things that matter most. So with that in mind, let's, let's, let's go to the scriptures. Ephesians chapter four, we'll start in verse 32. It says this, be kind and compassionate to one another. At this point, do not elbow your spouse if they're sitting next to you. You know what I'm talking about. Like, told you, don't do that. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ, God forgave you. Chapter five, verse one, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we're gonna work our way through this. I'm not, I'm not gonna take it in order right away, but put, put verse 32 up on the screen. Verse 32, here's where I want us to start. It says, be kind and compassionate. Say this with me, to one another. There are 59 one another's in the New Testament alone. 59, that's a lot of one another's. We're supposed to be doing a whole lot of one anothering. Now one another, what it implies is that there's more than one person involved. You can't one another yourself. One another doesn't happen in a vacuum. One another requires more than one person, right? The idea is that I'm gonna do this for you and then what can I expect? You're gonna do this back for me, right? That's how one another works. So here's the deal. Family is built on mutuality. You see, a family running on all cylinders, right? A family sort of being as healthy and as good as it could be. Here's what it means. Everybody's bought in. Everybody's invested. Everybody's engaged. Everybody realizes they have a part to play. And here's the part that matters most. We gotta get this. If we're talking about mutuality, here's what this means. It means that both your presence and your absence matters. Both your presence and your absence matters. When we disengage parents, when we get distracted, when we begin to invest ourselves maybe in too much in a career or something outside the family, guess what? There's repercussions. Or, or when, when we bail, when we abandon our family, we don't get to act like that nothing happened. I've heard about people who, whose one of their parents took off when they were little, just left, wasn't really around, wasn't really involved. But then when they got married, all of a sudden their parents showed up and expected, you know, I want to walk you down the aisle. It's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. It's not really how this works because both our absence, both our presence, it has consequences. Am I right? Everybody's got a role to play. Everybody has a part to play. Kids, that means children looking at you means that the family needs more from you than just to eat, sleep, and play Fortnite. Can I get an amen to that? you got a role to play. You have a part in all of this. But here's really why I wanted to say this. Sometimes with, with series like this, these, these family series about relationships and all that, sometimes what happens for some of us is it's like this big guilt trip. Because you're sitting out there and there's somebody you're not talking to, right? There's some sort of broken relationship. And so this entire series, it just feels like you're having your stuff thrown in your face and you're getting sort of, sort of beat up. Now, the last thing I want to do is get in the way of God convicting you maybe to do something about that. But here's what mutuality means. Mutuality means that all of that, all of that's not on you. It's not. See, forgiveness is something we can do by ourselves. It's up to one person. It's my choice to forgive. Reconciliation takes two people. And sometimes that, that broken relationship, that's not all on you. 
Romans chapter 12 says, says it like this. I love this. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. That lack of peace, that, that, that broken relationship, that lack of reconciliation, sometimes that doesn't just depend on you. There are some people in our lives who are toxic. They're not healthy. And sometimes the best thing we can do for both people is, is maybe end a relationship. Doesn't mean we slam the door shut and we stop hoping that it could one day change. But there's consequences for this. And in, in a couple months, we're going to do an entire series on boundaries. And you're like, yeah, right? We're going to talk about how, how to go about this in, in a healthy way. But, but a healthy family begins with mutuality, with everybody leaning in, everybody investing. Let's keep going. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 32, put it up there again. We're going to start with this first, first command. Here it is. Be kind and rewind. I'm just kidding. How many of you remember VHS tapes? Yeah? Let's just have a moment of silence for VHS tapes. Man. And how frustrated would you be when you come to that little box and there's like that little thing is put and you think it's in there? Remember the little thing you could never really tell and it wasn't there and you're mad because you don't get to watch Terminator 2 for like the 15th time? I'm on a rabbit trail. Be kind. We got to talk about this word kind for a little bit. It's a big one. In fact, from front to back, from front to back, from Old Testament to New Testament, the most consistent way that the authors of the scriptures, all the different authors, the most consistent way they describe the character of God is with the word kind. That God is kind. This is a big one. This is a big word. Think about this for a second in terms of our vertical life, our life with God. What's it mean for God to be kind? Well, here's what the word means. The word means to have a benevolent nature, to be well-meaning, to have good will towards. Quite simply this, the God revealed to us in Jesus is a God who is for you, a God who is on your side, a God who has always been for you. I mean, sometimes this creeps into different churches and it's, it seems like Sort of God is this really angry person who's, who's mad about everything. And, and Jesus has got to cool him off, got to calm him down. This is not the gospel. The truth of the gospel is that God has always been for you. And the first word of the gospel is love and acceptance. God's disposition towards you is not one of disappointment or disgust. And the scriptures say, while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. The first word of the gospel is, hey, I wish you could just get, all, get your act together could you just clean it up a bit? Then maybe I'll like you. It's not the first word of the gospel. First word of the gospel is, hey, you and all of your dysfunction and all your frustration and all of your brokenness, guess what? I like you. In fact, I love you. I accept you. You belong here. This is great. We could spend forever talking about this. But again, remember what the point of this is, is to begin to leverage the truth of our vertical life to begin to influence and shape our horizontal life. So what does this mean for our families? What does this mean for our families? How does this translate to those relationships that mean the most to us? Well, here's the deal. If kindness is shaping our families, if kindness is there, then our families will be a place of belonging. A place where, where that simple truth that you and I are worthy of love and acceptance is constantly reinforced. You're worthy of being loved. You're worthy of being accepted. One of the words that we speak over our daughters, 
few girls, my wife and I, we speak this over them as much as we possibly can. We tell them, you're worth it. You're worth it. Because they live in a world that's going to tell them over and over again, hey, you're only as worthy as you're willing to sell out. You need other people to make you. No, you don't. You're worth it. You alone are worth it. Make people live up to that. And the funny thing is, it's, if we think about how we live, it's, it's not hard to convince you that, that we actually, we, we want this from each other. This acceptance, this belonging. We long for this from each other. I see it every morning when, when, my, when my kids are getting ready, like my girls especially. My wife is usually getting them ready while I'm getting ready and I, I drive them in here uh, to M Kids Academy during the week. And every single morning, once they're done, I hear them take off running from their room into our room where I'm getting ready. And all of them say, both of them, Daddy, look, Daddy, look. And they start spinning around in circles. They want me to see them. They want me to notice them. They want me to recognize them. And I see this from my son too. He's playing soccer right now. Which I love kindergarten soccer. It is just hilarious. It's like amoeba ball. You know, and all the parents, we don't sound very intelligent, do we? It's like, run, kick, run, kick. Get your finger out of your nose. Run, kick. It's all it is, right? I mean, after every practice, all the way home, he's, he's like reliving the entire practice. Dad, did you see? Did you see when I kicked that goal? Did you see when I stopped? I mean, over, Dad, did you see? Did you see? Did you see? Man, families at their simplest are supposed to be that place where we're seen for who we are, where we're recognized, where we're accepted before anything else. We're accepted. It's a place where we belong. We live in a world, sadly, where, where people get sort of turned into commodities. It's like where your worth and, and value is only about how much you're able to accomplish, how much you're able to achieve, what you're able to do for me. Sadly, people in our world get turned into these things that we take advantage of or competition we try to get ahead of. And it's not hard for this to creep into the family. And when this happens, what we do is we trade kindness for compliance. So families aren't a place of belonging. They're a place to try and fit in. So you hear things like, many of you grew up in homes like this where, man, your affection and your acceptance and your approval had everything to do with what you were achieving, right? You want, you want to belong here? You want to fit in? Well, make sure that you're doing all these things. Check off the boxes. You're getting the grades. You're playing the sports. You're this person in your school. You have to, you have to sort of hit all these bars. And if you're not, then, then, then that affection gets taken away from you. That approval gets taken away from you. It's like I think about some of our, our community's obsession with sports. I mean, we live in a competitive community. Can I just say that? Is that okay? Y'all gonna run me out of here? We do, we live in a competitive community. Like we gotta have our kids in all these things and doing all these things and pushing them to do all this stuff. Which I'm, I'm for that, but I have to wonder how much of this is actually about them and how much of it's actually about us. And our weird insecurity, are we better parents than so-and-so? It's like our self-worth gets wrapped up into what our kids are doing. And then our families become this place of compliance, not this place of fitting in, not this place of acceptance. And you know what's funny is, man, parents, we want this from our kids too, don't we? It's like, I want my son to grow up and want to be like me. I want my daughters to grow up and want to marry men like me. That's what I want. In fact, it's, it, just last weekend, you know, I, I shared some stuff with you in worship. Wasn't easy. They're pretty vulnerable in here. And when you do that, I don't know how else to explain it, but it kind of leaves you feeling a little naked. Just like, there you go. 
1045, I was walking around here talking to people, and I'll be honest, I felt just kind of weird. It was like, uh, what do they think about me now? Like, do they like me? Like, what was that okay? I mean, you just get weird. Then all of a sudden, my three kids came running through that door right over there. And as soon as they saw me, beeline straight to daddy. They jumped all over me. They were so excited to see me, and it had nothing to do with the sermon I preached. It had everything to do with the fact that I was their dad. That was enough. And when they came in, guess what? I didn't, I didn't care what y'all think anymore. I don't care. I got this. This is all I need. We're supposed to get this strength from each other. This sense of acceptance, this belonging, that, that I mean, we're worthy of love and acceptance. But again, this is a struggle for us. Brene Brown, she's a great writer, research psychologist. She wrote, she's written several phenomenal books. One of them is called Daring Greatly. And I know I've talked about it before, but I'm going to keep talking about it until you actually read it. But Remember this one section in that book where she was talking about this, the struggle between fitting in and belonging inside of the family. And she's talking about how she gathered all these eighth graders together and she had them break up into smaller groups and she, she asked them to tell her the difference between fitting in and belonging. They were able to do it. But she said what floored them is when they began to talk about not feeling the sense of belonging in their families where they lived. And, and she asked them to explain, what, what did you mean? And, and so here, here's what they said. They said, not living up to your parents' expectations. Not being as cool or popular as your parents want you to be. Not being as smart as your parents. Not being good at the same things your parents were good at. Your parents being embarrassed because you don't have enough friends or you're not an athlete or a cheerleader. When your parents don't pay attention to your life. Paul tells us to be kind to one another, to be for one another, for our families to be this place of belonging. And I know what some of you are already thinking, well, what about discipline? I mean, are we supposed to just accept everything? Are we supposed to push our children to be better? Yes, you sure are. And in several weeks when we really zero in on parenting, we're going to talk about this. But the one thing I want to say this morning is this. The only atmosphere where discipline works as well as it could is an atmosphere that is drenched in kindness. It's an atmosphere where nobody has to worry about suddenly not fitting in. Because when you divorce discipline from kindness, what you get is condemnation. It's an attack on their character. And when, when condemnation happens, you know what follows is shame. And shame has this way of shutting down that part of us that believes we're capable of more. It's like, what does this mean? Let me put it in perspective. When your kid blows it and they're going to blow it, what voice do you want them to hear in their head? The voice that says, what did you expect? This is what you do. This is what you always do. Or do you want them in that moment to hear this voice saying, you know what? You blew it. I see it. But you and I both know you're better than this. You're capable of more than this. This is what kindness is all about creating this sense of, of belonging where a person's true identity is the thing that gets nurtured and encouraged over and over and over again. But let's, let's talk about this in, in terms of, of marriage relationships because this, this plays itself out there too. Am I, am I speaking to anybody y'all out there still? You look kind of sleepy. Marriage relationships. Some of this gets, gets fueled by, by these sort of cultural norms. For instance, ladies, Please make some noise if I'm talking to you too, or I need to hear from you. 
There's this cultural norm out there that says women need to work really hard to make sure and take care of everybody's needs, right? Make sure everybody's taken care of. But here's the trick. You got to make it look easy. Like whatever you do, don't put off the impression that you're somehow having a hard time. In fact, you need to stay pretty and nice the entire time you're doing it. Like everything's got to look social media worthy. But we all know it's hard. I can amen to that. You got all these people to take care of, right? And so I've talked to women so often and they said, you know, the, the thing I'm most terrified of is actually asking for help. I'm afraid if I ask for help, I'm gonna have all this shame heaped up on me. Like, well, I thought you're a good mom. I thought you're a good wife. You're supposed to be able to do all these things and it's supposed to look easy. What's wrong with you? That's what they hear, that's what they feel. Guys, from experience, one of the worst things you can say to your wife, whether she's a, uh, a working mother, whether she's a stay-at-home mom, one of the worst things you can say to her, what'd you do all day? It just goes to the core of all of that. It's just shame on top of shame on top of shame. Fellas, let's talk about us for a second. One of the cultural norms out there for us is that we got, we got to look tough. Whatever we do, we can't show weakness. Oh, pfft. I'm not scared. I got this. I can handle this. And so much of our identity gets wrapped up into being a provider. Right? I'm the man of the house. I'm the dad. I'm the husband because I pay the bills. Right? I'm the one going out there, you know, and, and I'm bringing home the bacon. Right? That's what I do. So God forbid we ever admit that we're scared. Or God forbid we ever admit that we're miserable in our job. God forbid we're ever having a hard time with all of this. In fact, Brene tells this story. Brene Brown, we're on a Brene and I are on a first name basis. She tells the story in her book that she was interviewing this guy who had lost his job. This blows my mind. He had lost his job, but he was able to keep it from his wife for over six months. And this kind of breaks my heart. Every day he'd wake up, he'd get ready, he'd leave the house like he was going to work, he'd drive across town, he'd sit in a coffee shop and he'd look for a job. Brene Brown, she was blown away by this. Like, how did you manage to do that? That's impressive that you're able to do that. Here's what he said back to her. He said, she doesn't want to know. If she already knows, she wants me to keep pretending. Trust me. If I find another job and tell her after I'm back at work, she'll be grateful. Knowing would change the way she feels about me. She didn't sign up for this. And when, when kindness isn't there, when there isn't this sort of atmosphere that's drenched in, hey, you're okay, you're accepted, you belong here. What ends up happening is we feel like we have to hide from each other. We've got to keep all this stuff from one another. And it just sits in here and it festers. I've seen this happen over and over and over again. And that's when resentment starts to creep in. We start resenting each other for conversations we've never even had because we are too afraid to bring it up because we are afraid of how they were gonna react. Instead, Paul says, be kind. Create places of belonging. Whereas Genesis says it, I love the way Genesis describes the first relationships between human beings before it all went haywire. Since they were naked and unashamed, they could be completely transparent and vulnerable. And it was safe. Safe. Let's keep going. Go back to Ephesians chapter four with me. There's more here, believe it or not. Ephesians chapter four, verse 32 again. So Paul says to us, be kind and compassionate to one another. Here's everybody's favorite word. Forgiving each other, 
just as in Christ Jesus, God forgave you. Now, New Testament was originally written in Greek. Ancient Greek has several words in it that, that get translated into our one word for forgiveness. And this is sometimes a little misleading, right? If you're like me and you hear that word forgive, you immediately think of that really difficult, that long process of trying to get over something that happened a long time ago, right? Tr trying to sort of release or send away a really deep wound that you have from somebody else. That's not the word that's being used here. In the Greek, that word tends to be this word of theomy, and it means to send away, to send away. This word is different. In the Greek, it's the word charisomenoi. And it has as his root word, charis, which is the word for grace. It's simply put, you know what this means? Be gracious to one another. Be generous towards one another. Particularly when you have good reason not to be. Particularly when there's a conflict, when there's a misunderstanding. This happens every time. Pay attention to it next time. When somebody you love, you're in a relationship with it, you're in, at one point in time, they're going to let you down. Am I right? They're going to do something you don't like. In that moment, you're going to have to make a choice. There's like this gap, right? There's this space between what you wanted them to do and what they actually did. You get to decide how you fill in that gap. Are you in that moment going to be generous and believe the best or instead are you going to assume the worst? I mean, this happens all the time, all the time in relationships. In fact, Jesus says something really interesting in Matthew chapter 18. He's talking about this conflict that happens between family, between people who, who are doing life together. Matthew chapter 18, here's what he says. If your brother or sister sins, go point out their fault just between the two of you. Some of you are like, oh, so there's my, there's my excuse for bringing it up. Jesus told me to do it. You messed up, now guess what I get to do? I get to point it out, right? But I want us to begin, what's the first word of this verse? Say it for me. If Jesus could have used the word when, but he didn't. Instead, he used the word if. I wonder how much of the conflict in our relationship is sometimes sort of built up and it happens around assumption or conjecture, right? It's, it's the way your loved one said that thing. Or maybe the fact that they didn't say something or there's body language. They didn't get back to you on a text message as fast enough as they should, right? There's this, all this room then for assumption and conjecture. And if you're anything like me, when that happens, my brain, man, it goes on hyperdrive. I start thinking about all this stuff, right? I start bringing all this stuff up from the past. I get ready to have the argument. I'm having the argument before we actually have the argument. So I got my counter argument. Then when you actually sit down and have the conversation, you realize you were way off. Samsonite. I was way off. My Dumb and Dumber fans. I see you over there. Have you ever been there before? It's like my wife the other day. She was sitting at the counter and she was working on this Bible study that she was about to sort of share with some other people. And when I'm working on a sermon, man, I'm thinking about it nonstop. Many of you know I like to talk. You notice that? And what I, I think what I'm talking about is really important. So my expectation is she should listen to me, listen to everything that I have to say. And when she doesn't, I get bent out of shape. So the other day, you know, she's there uh, looking at her computer, working on this Bible study. 
And, and I go to talk to her about what I'm thinking about for this weekend. She literally does this. She looks at me and goes right back to her Bible study. What do you think I do? Oh no. Oh no. And all of a sudden what your brain starts going, right? And I'm huffing and puffing all day. I get really mad. I go, I finally sit her down that night before bed and I was like, listen, you hurt my feelings. Here's what happened. I tried talking to you and you blew me off. She said, Nick, I had my earbuds in the entire time. I was listening to the Bible study. I didn't hear you at all. Instantly, you're like, <laughs> you ever been there before? I mean, when, there, when there's conflict, be generous. You have a choice to make. Are you gonna assume the worst? They're just blowing me off. They want a night out with their friends because they don't want anything to do with me. Maybe they just want a night out with their friends. Maybe they need a little space. Are you gonna believe the best? Be generous, believe the best. One more point. Can you hand one more point? And I'll let you go eat some lunch so you can come back and hang out with me at Earth Day event, right? <laughs> Ephesians chapter four. Let's look at how he kicks off chapter five. This is right at the end of the passage. Chapter five, verse one. It says, follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. This is how he wraps the whole thing up. Because here's what I want you to do. Here's what it comes down to. I want you to walk in the way of love. Now, love is a word we get a lot of mileage out of. We throw it around. We use it for all sorts of things. But, but Paul has a specific thing in mind. In fact, he goes on to clarify what this looks like. So I want you to walk in the way of love just as Christ Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us as a sacrifice. You see, for Paul, love has to do with sacrifice. Love has to do with service. He later on goes and says this in chapter five, verse 21. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, a family running on all cylinders, really grounded in the gospel, is a family of kindness. It's a family of generosity, and it's a family of service. For the sake of time, I don't want to make this too complicated. Here's what this looks like. A family who is walking in the way of love, a family who's, who's committed to service, is committed to asking this question of one another. Here's the question. It's a simple one. What can I do to help? What can I do to help? It, it sounds so simple, but I'm telling you, this, this gets to the heart of what it means to be a Jesus follower. I mean, Jesus had all authority, all power on earth and on heaven and been given to him. What do we watch Jesus do with that authority and a power over and over and over again? He uses it for other people. He leverages it for other people, specifically for people who don't have any power, who don't have any authority. We watch him come around them. We watch him lift them up. Tell me something. What would it look like for a family to be committed to that? To committed to, to, to using what they have, to leveraging their authority and their power to help each other out. I mean, can you imagine a family like this? But too often, you know what we're doing? We're walking around making our lists, aren't we? making our lists of, of why people should be trying harder, why we should, we have more, we should have more coming our way. We, we make lists of all the things that we're doing compared to all the things that they're doing or not doing. And we're throwing ourselves our own pity parties. 
But what, what would it look like to go in the opposite direction? What would it instead look like for, for me to ask you and for you to ask me to be in these relationships where I said, hey, what can I do to help? Remember this friend of mine sharing with me sort of breakthrough that he had in regards to all of this. He was a pastor that I worked with in Ohio and he said he and his wife, they were just in this rough spot. I mean, rough spot. It was cold. They'd been doing this whole list making thing for a while. She was a full-time nurse. I mean, she worked like crazy. He was a pastor. He worked like crazy. They had kids and they're just missing each other. But, but all the while, this resentment's building up because both of them feel like the other one's not pulling their weight. This one morning though, he woke up a couple hours early and he rolled over and he saw her laying there. For whatever reason, he just started thinking about her and the day she was gonna have. He's like, today you're you're probably gonna be taken advantage of, aren't you? I mean, somebody's gonna, gonna misunderstand you. You're gonna get a cold shoulder. People are gonna be trying to take from you all day. And he's asked this question. He's like, what if I were the one person in your life that was committed to not doing that? What if I were the one person in your life who was committed to using everything I have to be everything you need? This is exactly what we're talking about. This is what it's all about right here. And sometimes the world can be a hard place. I get an amen to that. He's just getting used, you're getting pushed aside, getting taken advantage of. You know, this is about the family's a place where that doesn't happen. Family's a place where you belong. Family's a place where we're going to make sure that we all have what we need. We got each other's backs. And I know what you're thinking right now. Right now you're thinking, you know what? This sounds great, but it's a little idealistic, right? You're right, it is. It is idealistic. Maybe you're thinking, you know what? This, is, this sounds great, but it's, just, it's hard, and there's no way that I'm going to be able to do this consistently. You're right. You won't. But it's still worth giving a shot. One of my things, my favorite things about Jesus, you read through the Gospels, is that Jesus had this way about him of always pointing us towards the ideal. I mean, unapologetically, Jesus would point us towards the ideal unwaveringly, what he would do is he would up the ante. He would raise the bar. He'd say things like, you know what? You've heard it said, don't murder people. But I tell you this, I don't want you to even hate them. See what he's doing? He's, he's pointing us to an ideal. He's, he's raising the bar and he unapologetically does this. He's so committed to pointing you and I, not, not to the reality of how things are, but to how they could be. But at the same time, you know what Jesus also never does? He never condemns anybody who doesn't hit it. He does both of these things. Even when they blow it, well, what we find from Jesus is compassion. It's grace. And it's another invitation to get up and to try again. One thing I've learned about you, I've learned about me, is that often when I don't reach the ideal, you know what I do? I just lower the bar. I just water it down a little bit. I just say, you know what? Let's just be a bit more realistic, right? Let's just, just, just accept things for how they are. Let's just sort of live here because all that is hopeless. It's pointless. This morning, more than anything, you know what I want you to do? I want to invite you to try again because family's always worth fighting for. Always worth fighting for. This morning, what we want to do 
is we want to invite you to come back home. 